All right, today we are going to be reading from the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And you should be able to find that on page 981 of your pew Bible. If you do not have a Bible, we have Bibles in the back on that table that you are welcome to take home with you. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Subtitled, Righteousness Through Faith in Christ. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, there's one thing we know about the Apostle Paul. He was not big on using periods. He would go on and on and on and on and on without ever stopping a sentence. Sometimes it's a little hard to follow. You have to put your own punctuation in there to understand what he's saying. But another thing that we know about him for sure is he packs a powerful punch in what he says. He puts a lot into it. And it is powerful. The very first thing he says in verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. In my opinion, this is one of the most basic, most important things that anybody needs to know about being a Christian. And we're going to talk a little bit about that more in a minute. He goes on to say, "To, To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. In other words, he's saying the more that we hear this, the more that we are reminded of it, the better off we are. And he was all the willing to do that, to remind us over and over and over again. Because when we truly rejoice in the Lord, everything else about being a Christian falls into place. And throughout Paul's letters, he's constantly reminding the believers to rejoice in Jesus Christ. 
In his letter to the Philippians, he uses the word rejoice eight times. And that's why he says to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. I used to wonder why Jesus would regularly repeat things over and over and over again. It's like he'd say the same thing six different ways. And then one day God kind of smacked me upside the head and said, it's because you are so hard-headed that we have to say these things over and over and over again to get you to understand them. And, and obviously Paul you know, is aware that a lot of us have a case of thick skullitis. We need to hear these things over and over and over again. We need to be reminded. Paul wrote this letter to the Philippines, Philippians, the Philippines, <laughs> to the Philippians while he was in prison in Rome for preaching the gospel. He talked about some people who were going around preaching the gospel in order to keep things stirred up against him. They weren't true believers in Christ, but they preached the gospel to keep the authorities upset and angry and to wreak havoc against the Christians. Can you imagine that? Preaching Christianity to cause trouble for the Christians. And Paul says that he rejoices in this. He rejoices in the fact that people who don't care about the gospel are preaching it. He says, I want you to know, in this verse, this is in chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. He was in chains because of the gospel. And he was rejoicing about it. In his opinion, the gospel became more powerful because of the fact that he was in chains, that he was in prison. Because the other believers became more bold because he was in prison. And the other people, the, the ones that opposed the gospel, were also preaching it to cause trouble for the Christians. What more could you ask for than to have your enemies doing your job for you? That's a pretty awesome thing. He says in verse 1 of chapter 3, rejoice in the Lord. So why is he telling them to rejoice in the Lord? What is so important about rejoicing in the Lord? What exactly does the word rejoice mean? Rejoice is more than being happy. It's more than being glad. It's an ex ecstatic feeling of joy. It means to be full of joy. Paul is telling them to be full of the joy in the Lord, to be happy, glad, ecstatic, 
about God, to find all of their confidence, to find all of their contentment in God. In verses 2 through 6, he gives a warning. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And he's talking about people who would actually cut themselves to get the attention of the gods that they worshipped. Could you imagine having to cut your body to get your attention of God? Wow, I don't think I'd want his attention. If I got to mutilate myself to get him to listen to me? He says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now, someone might read this and think, boy, he was awful arrogant. He thinks he's better than anybody else. But what he's talking about is what he used to believe that made him righteous. And he's talking about righteousness under the law. He believed by following all the law and doing everything that was written made him closer to God, made him become the man that God wanted him to be. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. In other words, he was one of God's people. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. So what does he mean when he says, we who put no confidence in the flesh? He's saying that everything he is, everything that he does is because of God, not of his own doing. His confidence used to be in the flesh. The fact that he was circumcised eight days after he was born, a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin, well studied in the laws of Moses, doing all kinds of things that he thought would make him right with God. Things that he calls righteousness under the law. Paul says that as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. In other words, he tried to follow the letter of the law perfectly. The NIV interprets this righteousness under the law, under the law as being legalistic righteousness. See, Paul had believed along with many other people that they could be right with God because they followed the law. Because of the things they did. They put their confidence in themselves. God loves me because of what I do. Because of what I am. And quite frankly, that was false spirituality. It was not the real deal. See, over time, the Pharisees had devised an intricate system of traditions. Which were supposed to ensure that God's laws would be followed to the letter. They had hundreds of man-made rules and these rules were basically elevated to the level of scripture so that by breaking one of these man-made rules you were literally breaking the law of God according to the Pharisees. In reality though 
some of these traditions actually violated God's laws. A perfect example is in, in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. And this, I'm reading from the NIV. And I've mentioned to you before, when I, when I prepare a sermon, I like to look at different versions of the Bible because you get different ideas of the same thing, sometimes different expressions of how something is said, and it makes it more understandable. Rather than just reading one point of view, it's not that the meanings are different, but it's something that we can relate to easier. This is titled Clean and Unclean. It says, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is korban, which is a gift devoted to God, then you are no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. This was not rejoicing in the Lord. This was not the real deal. This was taking God's commandment and nullifying it. Quite frankly, some of the traditions of the elders, you know, washing their hands before they eat and, you know, having clean pitchers and kettles and cups, some of that's not all that bad of an idea. You know, I kind of like to eat out of clean dishes. But some of the stuff that they did was more for show than anything else. They wanted to make people think that they were so righteous, so holy, so religious. But they were not the real deal. You know, unfortunately, we often rejoice in things or other people. We might rejoice in our house or our car or TV, maybe our pets, maybe our friends. You know, it doesn't mean these things are bad, but they are not what we should be rejoicing in. It's not where our rejoicing should come from. Things may bring us temporary happiness or pleasure, but they aren't going to give us true joy. People and things will let us down. Just recently, we, we heard about Eric Schneiderman, who was the former New York Attorney General who brought legal action against Harvey Weinstein. 
and was a very outspoken and popular supporter of the Me Too movement. He himself was accused of sexual harassment and was forced to resign in disgrace. Apparently, he was not the real deal. He put on a good show for people, but in reality, he was doing the exact same things that he was supposedly fighting against. With God, we know what true joy is. We know that God is the real deal. In the book of John, chapter 9, we read about Jesus healing a blind man by putting mud on his eyes and having him go wash in the pool of Siloam. We pick up the story in chapter 9, starting at verse 13. Again, this is from the NIV. It says, I love this subtitle. It's called, The The Pharisees Investigate the Healing. It says, They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it now that he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. How dare you lecture us? It wasn't about God. It was about them. They were rejoicing in themselves, not in God. If they were truly rejoicing in God, they would have been overjoyed that a man born blind had received his sight. They would have searched for Jesus in order 
to praise him, not to kill him. The Pharisees were not the real deal. Many years ago, I was studying to become an ordained minister in a certain denomination that I was part of. We're going to call that denomination, Denomination X. Over time, it became very clear to me that the entire process of becoming ordained in Denomination X was more about becoming part of Denomination X than it was about becoming a minister of the gospel. To paraphrase, I was expected to eat, drink, and sleep Denomination X. I was expected to tell the story of Denomination X and get people to buy into that story. There would have been no time for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ because I would have been too busy busy telling the story of Denomination X. Once while I was attending a training conference that was part of the process for becoming ordained, one of the instructors said in a private setting, sometimes we are so busy being denomination X that we miss out on the deep things of God. This was not rejoicing in the Lord. This was rejoicing in denomination X. When I finally worked up the courage to face the leaders of the church and say, this is wrong, I was humiliated. I was made to feel as though I misunderstood the whole process, made to feel like I was a rebel or an outsider. I was stripped of my title, given a huge pay reduction. I was not allowed to preach for a very long time. And I basically became a glorified secretary because of my disobedience. How dare I question the authority of denomination X? Who was I to say that their motives were wrong? Who was I to say that this was not the real deal? Paul continues in verse 7 with what you might call his declaration of faith. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Righteousness that is the real deal. Can you imagine what it would be like if everyone in this country who's been working and chasing after the American dream suddenly said, I consider these things rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Or I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Or whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. In other words, all of the time and effort I put into this life 
was a big waste because I was doing it for myself and not for Christ. Wow. What an awesome country that would make if that became the new American dream. That would make America great again, wouldn't it? That would be cause for rejoicing. Paul ends the section with a statement that is every bit as powerful as what he started out with. In 3.10, he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. How can we share in his sufferings? Now, Paul was in chains for Jesus. He was suffering for him. He did what God called him to do, no matter what the consequences was. If you read the letters from Paul, getting thrown into prison didn't come as a surprise to him. He had a pretty good idea it was going to happen. And it happened more than once. And it never slowed him down. I guarantee you, if we do what God has called us to do, regardless of the consequences, we'll suffer too in some way. How can we become like him in his death? Paul died to the world. He gave up everything that he had been. He called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He made it his life's work to go around persecuting Christians because he believed they were blaspheming God. Until God got a hold of him and showed him the truth. Everything that he had worked his whole life for became useless to him. It meant nothing. Because what he had done, he did not do for Jesus Christ. He did for himself. He had confidence in the flesh. He had confidence in himself, not in God. He gave up everything that he had been so he could rejoice in the Lord. He gave up this temporary life. Our time on the earth that James called a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Dying to the world and living for him, becoming like him in his death. Jesus Christ gave his life for us. That, my friends, is eternal life in heaven, becoming like him in his death. Eternal life in heaven where we will be his people. God himself will be with us and be our God. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. When we look beyond the physical world that we live in and we see and we feel the power of God, when we look beyond the here and the now to a new life, a new life as a spiritual being, a new life that lasts forever, in the presence of the Lord God Almighty and in fellowship with the King, Jesus Christ. 
when we live each and every minute of our lives for that time. That is what it means to rejoice in the Lord. That is the real deal. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your love, for your promise of eternity and your glorious kingdom. Thank you for making a way for us. Thank you for making a way for us to be clean, to be righteous, to be holy before you. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to truly rejoice in the Lord. To find true joy in knowing Jesus Christ. In dying with him to the things of this world. And living with him for eternity. As we go from here today, Lord God, help us each and every day to truly find joy in the Lord, to let the joy of the Lord be our strength, to rejoice in the Lord always, to not be confident in ourselves or anything that we do, but to be confident in the simple fact that God so loved the world He gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Lord, that is where our joy lies. That is what makes us rejoice. That is the real deal. Help us, Lord, to share that with the world each and every day that we may focus on you that you would be our true joy in Jesus name Amen